Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 157 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Shannon Salter about British Columbia's Civil Resolution Tribunal and how to build products for the public at large, similarly in the United States. Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, FreshBooks, and Ruby Receptionists. We appreciate their support, and we'll tell you more about them later in the show. So we've done this podcast now for over three years and have provided lots of cool guests and content for our listeners. And I feel like we probably, in giving all of that, haven't done enough asking in return. And I think we've got such cool ways for lawyers to engage with the broader lawyerist community and to help us spread the word about the great guests we have on the show that we wanted to take a minute and make three asks of you. At our TBD Law events that we do every year, we've developed a system of having people make unreasonable requests with the idea that every once in a while, if you ask a group of people to do something for you that's totally unreasonable and you shouldn't expect them to do it, that every once in a while they will and that you can have some really great results from that. I'm not sure these requests are unreasonable, but we wanted to make them of you because we want you to be both more deeply engaged with our community and to help us spread the word about the work we're doing. Here are the three things we would love for you to do if you haven't already. Number one is to review this podcast in iTunes or Google Play, depending on where you listen to it. Um, Those ratings and reviews both help us have a broader reach within those platforms, but also understand what people like about the show so that we can provide more of that. If you go to lawyerist.com slash podcast, there's a big button there to click to review the show in one of those two platforms, and we would really appreciate it. Number two, we have been building out several directories, portals with information about the kinds of technology products that lawyers need and use. Uh, We have a portal for law practice management software, virtual receptionists, credit card processors, timekeeping and billing software. And here's the thing, we really need your input on those portals. So please visit those pages and review the software or the services that you have tried and tell us what you like or don't like about it because those your input is vital to those pages. You can just go to lawyerists.com, click on the nav menu under topics, and you'll find those pages. Please find your software and leave a review. We'd really appreciate it. And really, uh, not just the software you're currently using, but any product or service you've ever used, even if you don't use it anymore because you don't like it or it doesn't work for you, those reviews are useful to other lawyers too. And so then our number three ask is, if you haven't already, we want you to join our community. Join the Lawyerist tribe by becoming an insider. And it's a free thing to join, but allows us to engage more deeply with you and understand the needs of your practice and your firms that we can provide better support to you. And so you can get to know other lawyers in our community. So to join the insider, again, it's free. You just go to lawyerist.com slash insider and you can check out. You'll get some access to free downloads, an invitation to a free Facebook group of some of our favorite people and some other stuff. And it's free. And we'd really love to have you join the Lawyerist tribe. 
subscribe as an insider. Okay, so those are our asks, and we'd really appreciate it. Uh, doing this podcast is a lot of fun, and this is a great way that you can thank us for it. So we're going to hear briefly from Alexis Martinelli, who is going to make her case for why most small firm lawyers should consider launching estate planning practices. And after that sponsored interview, we'll have my conversation with Shannon Salter, which I think you'll love. My name is Alexis Neely. I've been in private practice as a lawyer since 2000. Uh, I went out on my own in 2003 after working at Munger Tolls Nelson as an associate attorney for three years and realized that the traditional law business model is broken. So from 2003 to 2006, I created a new law business model serving families and small business owners in a new way and built a million dollar practice while I was also raising my little kids and going through divorce and in my fourth year worked in that practice just two to three days a week, still bringing in a million dollars of revenue for that year while I wrote a best-selling book on legal planning for families and started doing a bunch of TV and really realized that I needed to teach this model to other lawyers, which is what I do today. Great. So Alexis, you wanted to tell people that estate planning is the perfect practice area for most lawyers. I'm a little skeptical mm -hmm. because you say even if lawyers have never considered it before, they should be doing estate planning. So why? Tell us why. Yeah. So there's there's really two reasons, two sides to this coin. The one is the impact that you can make on your community. I know that there are so many lawyers out there who are unfulfilled with the practice of law. They went to law school. They wanted to make a difference in their clients' lives. They wanted to make a great living. And then they came out of law school and that's just not what's happening. They are tied to the billable hour or they can't even get a job or they're working way too much or they have zero control over their schedule. And uh, estate planning or, by the way, they're not feeling as if they're really making a difference in their clients' lives. And estate planning actually solves all of those problems when done in the right way. Most lawyers are not doing estate planning in the right way, but when done in the right way, it actually makes a huge difference in your community. It is really exciting, and I know we didn't get that in law school. Uh, most of our wills and trust teachers made it seem really boring and dry. It's not like that at all when you're doing it right. And uh, you can have complete control over your schedule, and you can make a great living while you're doing it. And you can dial it up or dial it down. So. You could have a small part-time practice working from home, totally virtually. You can have an office with multiple attorneys in it, like I did. I today have a virtual practice. I don't have a big office anymore. Um, and you get to decide. And so I think it's the best practice area because to me it checks all the boxes other than going out there and, you know, being in litigation. Uh, but, you know, I, I tried out the litigation thing, and while I liked it, um, I didn't like having to be in depositions until 11 o'clock at night, and I didn't like dealing with adversarial opposing counsel, and I didn't like the woman that I had to be in order to be a great litigator, whereas I really love the woman I get to be being an estate planning lawyer. Okay, so I'm guessing the reasons that you gave for why people ought to try estate planning don't necessarily resemble all of the estate planners practices who might be listening or people who dabble in wills and trusts. So mm -hmm. what are the mistakes they're making? Yeah. So the big mistakes that most estate planning lawyers are making is that they are doing estate planning the way that we were taught in law school, which is forms and documents. And you're right, doing it that way, it does pretty much suck. And not only does it suck for you, but it sucks for your clients too. And I learned this firsthand when I saw a number of failed estate plans throughout my own life, starting with my father-in-law who spent $3,000 on an estate plan when I was in law school. 
she died and we were stuck dealing with the probate court and his ex-wife. And I thought for sure his lawyer must have committed malpractice. And then I go to work at one of the biggest law firms in the country and find out, nope, this is actually common practice. And then I survey lawyers throughout the country who are doing estate planning. I find out, nope, this is common practice. And that's when I really began to discover that most estate planning lawyers or most lawyers who are doing wills and trusts, even just dabbling in it, are actually failing their clients. And by the way, they're also failing themselves, Sam, because it's not a great way to practice law. You know you're not really making a difference. You know that what you're providing is nothing more than somebody could go online today and do themselves on you know, one of the big document providing services, Rocket Lawyer, Legal Zoom. There's, you know, so many of them today. So that is not a way to love your law practice serving families or small business owners, but there is a way that you can do it. And it just requires you to shift the way that you at what you're doing for your clients and how you're doing it. And then you get to serve families and business owners in your community in a way that has them give you gifts, refer you to all their friends, family, clients, and colleagues, be so happy to be working with you. And that's pretty rare for us as lawyers. And so when you do it right, it's actually feels really good to you, feels really good to your clients, and lets you have control of your schedule and make as much or as little money as you want. So if you'd like to learn more about how Alexis thinks you ought to be building your estate planning practice, or if you're curious and you want to learn how, you can visit estateplanningrules.com. That's estateplanningrules.com to learn more and download a white paper that will introduce you to it. Thanks, Alexis. You're so welcome. Hello, my name is Shannon Salter. I'm the chair of the Civil Resolution Tribunal, Canada's first online tribunal. And by way of training, I'm a lawyer and uh, have a history of sitting on administrative tribunals as a decision maker, um, and also previous to that, practicing civil litigation at a Vancouver firm. Wow. I'm so excited to have you here. And quickly, shout out to Spencer Keys, who is a BC lawyer, who I believe you know, who listened to our podcast with Professor Ben Barton and said, Sam, you've got to interview Shannon Salter. And so here we are. Yes. Thank you, Spencer. (laughs) So I have lots of questions, but I think we should probably just start with what is the Civil Dispute Resolution Tribunal? Is it CRT? Is that what we can call it? We can call it the CRT. Yes, it's the Civil Resolution Tribunal. So what is it? The CRT is the first online tribunal in Canada. And as far as we knew, the first one in the world as well. What it is, is an administrative tribunal. We've got hundreds of them here in Canada. Each of them have responsibility under legislation for particular kinds of disputes or decisions that need to be made. I think in the U.S. you would call these administrative courts. In Canada, they're not courts, but they are part of the public justice system. So the result of somebody who has a dispute that comes to the CRT, at the end of the dispute resolution process, they get a a tribunal order that's enforceable as a court order. So the CRT has jurisdiction over two kinds of disputes right now. The first are everyday neighbor disputes that happen in condominium buildings. And the second area of disputes are uh, small claims, $5,000 or under. And small claims, as you probably are familiar with, are your everyday kind of consumer disputes, debt, contract, personal injury issues, that kind of thing. So the significance of the tribunal part is that this was legislatively created 
not core created. That's right. And one of the things that makes the CRT distinct compared to other online dispute resolution uh, projects around the world or ODR projects are that it is the first one that's publicly integrated into the justice system. So you see a lot of ODR projects uh, like Modria and, and others that were really the product of for-profit uh, corporations or not-for-profit organizations, rather. Yeah. And they operated outside the public justice system to provide people with an alternative to that justice system. And uh, that's been really valuable in all kinds of ways. But in my view, really, the, the potential to really transform the justice system requires that online dispute resolution and modernization happen within the public justice system. So, I mean, small claim courts are things that we're all familiar with, um, and it, it sounds very similar. But is it purely optional, or is it the kind of thing where if you want to bring a small claim, uh, the court is going to either demand or strongly encourage you to go through the CRT first. So it is, the CRT is mandatory for the kinds of disputes within its jurisdiction. Oh. So if you have a neighbor dispute in a condominium in BC, or you have a small claims dispute, $5,000 or under, you have to come to the CRT unless the court gives you an exemption on a case-by-case -case basis. That hasn't really happened so far yet. Uh, so we have exclusive jurisdiction over all of those kinds of disputes in British Columbia. Now, that doesn't mean that somebody who is not comfortable with technology or doesn't have access to a computer is forced to go online. We offer a variety of ways to engage in the dispute resolution process. So we have mail and telephone-based services in addition to online services. But one thing that's really surprised us is the overwhelming demand for online services. In a nutshell, basically nobody uses our paper forms. Wow. Okay. So from the consumer user perspective, I'm pissed off at my neighbor because um, he pulled a tree out of, of our yard or something like that that was annoying him. And so I want to sue him for the cost of the tree or something like that. How do I even find out about the CRT? Am I likely to walk into court or am I going to be Googling how do I sue my neighbor? or How will I even find out about it? We know from research that where people go first to find out what their options are is online for the most part now. So I hopefully when you Google uh, condominium or neighbor dispute or small claims in British Columbia, uh, our website pops up first. And we've designed our website and really all of our technology to look very friendly and easy to use. Uh, we aim for about a grade six reading level for all the content we create. And so somebody who uh, comes to our website with that kind of issue, first, before they file a claim, um, has to go through something called the Solution Explorer, which is uh, a guided pathway or expert system, which is just a tech way of saying it's an integrated, interactive questionnaire. So we spend a little bit of time first with people, or at least our computer system does, helping them to better understand their legal problem and to give them plain language legal information uh, up front, as well as some self-help tools like template letters that they can use to, for example, send their neighbor a, hmm. a letter outlining their position and uh, offering to resolve the dispute somehow. Without even going through the CRT or any other court. Exactly. And, and this is important for a few reasons. One is that we know that for most people, uh, they will not see a lawyer for these kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. And they may feel very much wronged, but but in fact may not have a legal issue. In the, right. Because they have a problem, but not a legal issue. Well, and even if they do, it's way easier to just resolve it. I exactly. So the, the goal of the Solution Explorer, which is basically, you know, we ask you what your problem is and you select from options. And then that tells us what, to, what kind of information or what kind of question to ask you next. And w what it does is allows us to get a pretty high degree of granularity for people's problems. So if you ask people questions online and you take their 
their answers, it lets you give them very targeted bits of legal information, um, as well as really targeted tools. So the template letter I talked to you about before that you can send your neighbor um, happens at the end of having asked some questions and received some answers from the user. And that information is used to populate the template letter, for example. So we want to give people those tools up front so that ideally, as you say, they never even file a dispute with us. Um, But even if they have to, our hope is that by having that upfront legal information, they can take a more rational or reasonable position in terms of what their next step should be. Is it worth filing a claim? If it is worth filing a claim, what should my position be in the mediation phase, which we haven't talked about yet, but is really the core of the CRT, is collaborative dispute resolution. So I want to talk about that, but one thing struck me while we were talking about how do people find it and they arrive at it. I'm wondering if you spent time thinking about how to give the message that this is an actual official thing. Because like when I'm Googling stuff, I land on web pages and one of the first things I'm always doing with that web page is like, is this real? And let's face it, your website looks a lot more like something I would expect to see from a uh, fairly tech savvy startup than from a court system. And when I went to visit it, I was like, am I in the right place? This actually looks too slick for a court. <laughs> but I'm wondering if you, well, if I'm you take considered that. As a compliment. that. It, well, I mean it as a compliment, but it's also like, it's a funny user design problem that I hadn't really thought about, which is if you're trying to convey officialness, sometimes it can be too good looking and too slick. This is actually something we spent a fair bit of time thinking about, especially because when somebody does file a claim with the CRT, once they determine that we are authentic and legitimate and file a a claim, uh, what we send them is by email a dispute notice that they then have to serve on the other parties. And and the dispute notice, too, doesn't look so much like a court form. Mm -hmm. It's fully much easier to understand. It has our logo. Uh, it, it's pretty clear and plain language. Which again is like, that's not what you expect from official documents. <laughs> right. And especially if you're receiving this by email, you may well think this is not actually an official document. So um, we have, we, we've spent a lot of time uh, making sure that we get the word out about this. So well before we opened, at least a couple of years before we opened our doors, we spent a huge amount of time doing town hall meetings, uh, doing media interviews, webinars with uh, community advocates and librarians, going to all the places where people go to seek legal help and advice, and making sure that those uh, intermediaries understand the CRT and can direct people to the right place. So a lot of it is an education piece. Um, But so far, surprisingly, we haven't had too much confusion uh, from folks about whether or not this is a quote-unquote real thing that they have to pay attention to. Okay, so thank you. I kind of love the details about design and stuff like that that people might not be thinking about, and it's it's neat that you tried to sort that out. Let, let, me, let me go back to where we were going next, which is, okay, so somebody does decide to start a dispute, um, someone responds, and, and then there's a mediation negotiation phase. Uh, say more about those pieces of it. Yeah, or did, or did I, I skip I, something important? <laughs> no, no, you're you're exactly on the right track. And I should just take a step back and say that we get a lot of attention for being an online tribunal because I think in the legal world or the court world, if you do something online, it's uh, you know very exciting, even though you're it's it's not particularly revolutionary in terms of modern society. Throw generally. AI in there, and people's brains will explode. Yeah, <laughs> it'll be. <laughs> is a very basic form of AI, although we are looking at ways of using AI in in different ways as well. But um, so in my view, though, the whole online piece is secondary to our greater mission. Our mandate is to provide more accessible, inexpensive, less complicated, more timely dispute resolution for people. And 
we know that one of the ways to do that is to allow them to participate wherever, however they are. And so using online tools is a good way of doing that. Another good way of doing that, though, is by uh, helping to support people to reach an agreement wherever possible. This is important because we know that people tend to be more satisfied with problems that they solve by agreement rather than having a tribunal member like me or a judge even make a decision. And we also know they're more likely to stick to their side of the bargain if they reach an agreement rather than even if they are subject to a court order, which is a bit surprising. So we really try and support people along the way to reach an agreement using as few of their resources and as few as our resources as possible in the early stages. So the solution explorer that I described, that question and answer thing, is automated. It doesn't cost the user anything and it doesn't use any of our staff time. The next phase, though, is the negotiation phase. And that's where the parties have filed their claim, they've responded, and then they're invited to enter this neutral virtual forum where they can basically just start talking. Hmm. And surprisingly, that resolves a considerable number of disputes as well, even though there are no staff members involved at this point. Just providing people with a forum where they can start to discuss the issue uh, is pretty effective in certain kinds of cases. So does that mean they, they can invite their opponent, as it were, in and they have a private kind of chat room? That's right, except we're the ones who do the inviting, or at least our computer system does. So once a dispute is filed, our computer system will send an email to both parties, <gasps> inviting them to come into this neutral chat room and start to to talk. Um, we incentivize that by waiving, it, waiving the fee for creating an order if they're able to reach an agreement. Hmm. Uh, but basically, it's very low intervention on our part. And they're doing this while they're waiting for a mediator to be assigned. So it doesn't take any additional time in the process, but it makes the best use of these natural kind of pauses in the dispute resolution process. Hmm. And I notice on the website, you have some language about abusive behavior. And I I imagine that on the one hand, not being face-to-face might be very helpful in facilitating an agreement. But I can also imagine uh, being a person who has spent a lot of time on the internet that it can go wrong and people can kind of be assholes to each other. Um, Does that happen a lot? It hasn't happened very often. Um, I think we've all seen the comment section for various blogs (laughs) and newspapers and and had that anxiety. But I think a key difference there is the anonymity that sometimes encourages people to behave badly online. People are not anonymous in the CRT process. They also are aware that CRT staff are occasionally monitoring these chats. We also have, uh, as you pointed out, codes of conduct for participants. And if they breach those, there can be consequences. So they can be subject to a non-compliance order from a tribunal member. Uh, Their participation in the process can be limited. And there can be other cost consequences as well. So we have tools to make sure that people uh, adhere to the rules uh, of the tribunal and treat each other respectfully. We have a zero tolerance for harassment and bullying. But I'm happy to say that hasn't happened very often. Very cool. So if that if that does happen in the negotiation phase, if people start getting too heated, there is a button to report abuse, and then the negotiation phase is just paused gotcha. until a mediator can come in and start mediating. How long does that typically, does the self-negotiation or self-motivated negotiation go before a mediator is assigned? And I mean, how many mediators are there? Is this a, a big pool or a, a lot of things getting resolved before that? Uh, I'd say a small percentage of cases are being resolved in the negotiation phase, but that's it's early days. We only rolled out that feature couple of months ago. So we're experimenting, we're doing a lot of A-B testing, and we're we're learning a lot about that. Um, There is a 
a, a waiting period for a mediator to be assigned. We have about 14 or 15 mediators and we're hiring more every few months. Uh, but people do need to wait typically about four or five weeks for a mediator to be assigned. We call them facilitators in our world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once the facilitator is assigned, that person will go in and uh, start communicating with the parties. And it's it's very, very flexible. So, for example, if uh, two parties are in a dispute and one of them is only really comfortable on the telephone and the other is sort of happy to be online, the facilitator will likely organize a telephone conference call because that's what's most comfortable for Mm -hmm. for both of the parties. Um, Similarly, the facilitator can accommodate all kinds of different schedules. So if you have a a single parent who has a day job and kids and um, is only really available to respond or work on a dispute in the evening, and they're in a dispute with a shift worker who has a totally different schedule, that's fine. That's one of the ways that using online tools offers people more accessibility and flexibility uh, because people can go in and, and respond when they need to. So the mediation there might happen through uh, our online portal or through through email. So I was going to ask you about the technology that powers this, and it sounds like it is mostly a communications platform. Does that sound right? That's certainly one of its functions. It's also a case management sure. platform. It has this artificial intelligence component. Uh, it, pulling back the curtains, the CRT software is built on Salesforce.com. Huh. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Salesforce. But yeah, definitely. For your listeners who may not be, it's a customer management database software. It's designed primarily for e-retailers. But if you think about it, uh, that kind of, the kind of information that you need to collect in that context isn't that different from what a court needs to collect for a case management system, right? You've got names and addresses and file details and uh, documents that need to be attached. You have tasks that you need to create for staff members. So that's the cloud-based software that powers the CRT. And then what the Ministry of Justice in British Columbia has procured to to build, and this is pretty much entirely built now, is two lightweight pieces uh, or web applications that integrate with Salesforce. Uh, One powers that solution explorer question and answer uh, platform I talked about earlier. And the other one, as you say, has a big communications function. Um, it includes our online intake form, uh, different tools for citizens to take different steps in the life of their claim. It includes evidence handling, uh, case management functions, the negotiation platform, that kind of thing. So uh, is this something that you're constantly developing or is was this built and now you're using it and at some point in the future you'll do an update? No, this we use an agile development process. And so it's never going to end probably. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, so absolutely. So we do a huge amount of user testing and I can describe our process with that if you'd like. It, I think it's different uh, to undertake rigorous user testing when you're developing software in a public justice system versus uh, you know, a, a private software company um, that can pick its market, for example. But but nonetheless, user testing is, is obviously extremely important and we've done tons of it. We keep doing tons of it. So we're really committed to continuous improvement and also rolling out uh, software in a in a thoughtful kind of incremental way. So we started with the Solution Explorer. We rolled that out in beta. Um, and then we opened our doors for these neighbor disputes uh, with a pretty limited set of technology. But as we uh, keep moving forward and keep learning more, we develop uh, different functionality and, and keep rolling that out in an agile way. So I have so many questions, but we need to take a break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I think rather than just geeking out on your design process, which I would ordinarily do, I think I want to talk about how you measure success and then talk about kind of the implementation process, how you got this done and how someone might replicate that. So we'll be back in just a few minutes. 
Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars. LawPay. Being a self-employed lawyer is hard enough, which is why dealing with your day-to-day paperwork on top of it all shouldn't have to be. FreshBooks makes ridiculously easy-to-use cloud-based time and billing software that will help you work smarter, get paid faster, and become more organized. With FreshBooks invoicing, you can create and send polished professional invoices effortlessly in mere seconds. FreshBooks can set you up to receive payments online, which can seriously improve how quickly you get paid. You can track your time either by using their mobile app or your desktop, meaning you'll always know what work you did, when you did it, and who you did it for. There's also a super handy deposit feature so you can invoice for a payment upfront when you're kicking off a project. To feel the full impact of how FreshBooks can change the way you deal with your paperwork, FreshBooks is offering our listeners a 30-day free trial. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section. Ruby Receptionist is a live remote receptionist service that is dedicated to helping lawyers win clients and build trust one happy caller at a time. From their offices in Portland, Oregon, Ruby's friendly professional receptionists ensure exceptional client experiences by answering calls live in English or Spanish, transferring calls, taking messages, collecting new client intake, addressing common questions, making outbound calls for you, and more, just like an in-house receptionist at a fraction of the cost. More importantly, they sound like they're sitting in your office. For a special offer, visit callruby.com slash lawyerist2018 or call 844-715-7829. That's 844-715-RUBY. Okay, we're back. And like I said, I'm tempted to ask you all about user testing. I am curious about that. Um, But maybe just a couple of things about um, what's different about user testing in a public environment? Because you, you dropped that, and to me, that felt like a meaty thing that I wanted to dig into. Yeah, I think there are some key differences. So going back to what I said at the beginning, you know, private ODR software companies or even not-for-profit ODR projects have some key differences from a publicly integrated one like ours. One is that a private software company can pick its market segment. It can decide this product is for uh, middle-class users who have this particular education background and that particular skill set. When you're designing technology for the public justice system, you don't have that luxury. It has to work for everybody. You have to account for everybody, including the most heavily barriered, marginalized user, uh, all the way up to somebody who files 50 disputes a day. <laughs> and so that really drives the way that you do user testing, or at least it drives the way that we do user testing. So the way we do user testing in a whole variety of different ways, but one key continuity is that we always start with the most heavily barriered users in society. Hmm. So we always start with community legal advocates who serve uh, clients who may be low income, uh, may have mental health issues, may have addiction issues, uh, may not speak English as a first language, may have a physical disability. And we have a very generous roster of advocates who are the first step whenever we design anything new. And this could be technology, like the negotiation platform, but it also can include things like our forms our rules, uh, a new policy on fee waivers, for example. So we always start with them. 
Uh, they always are very generous with their feedback, and we make it pilot changes based on their feedback. Then we move on to mainstream public testing. So we recruit members of the public to test all of these things as well and give us feedback, and then we make a ton of changes there. And then we end with the lawyers, <laughs> and we end with um, other, you know, more sophisticated uh, actors in the justice system. So well, Because really, lawyers don't actually have much of a role to play in this. They don't, and our assumption is that if it works for the most heavily barriered members of our society, it will absolutely work for lawyers. That sounds a lot like Microsoft's uh, accessible design principles, which is exactly what you just stated. If you solve the hardest problems by designing for the most challenged people, the rest of it will pretty much take care of itself. I, I think that's true. That certainly worked for us. And it's worked not only to design really simple um software and simple forms and simple rules, but it also means that we've been able to build a lot of trust with people who haven't always been well served by public sector technology um, and sometimes have felt quite disenfranchised by it, in fact. So that's been really valuable for us as well. Um, we've managed to rub off a lot of the rough edges of the, of the technology before we even start coding. Um, so one of the key lessons we learned uh, through launching the Solution Explorer is that it's really tempting, even in an agile process, to say, well, we're going to just test that in beta. We'll wait till beta to, mm -hmm. to figure that out. But beta is pretty far along. Yeah. And so it's much less expensive and you get much closer to the mark if you start testing in the conceptual design phase early with the people who are likely to have the most difficulty. And that leads to, to much more sustainable, uh, usable technology later on. Well, it sounds like the order of your testing also reflects reality. Uh, you know, I was having a conversation with a friend, uh, an old family friend who's a judge recently, and he was expressing frustration about constantly having to deal with pro se parties. And we know each other well enough that I kind of exclaimed at him, I mean, come on, like, only 20% of the people you see are represented, right? That's not your core demographic. You know, you, you need to be building your, your justice system around the 80% who aren't represented. And I'm a lawyer and I'm an advocate for lawyers and I love lawyers, but I'm also uh, interested in access to justice and I try to advocate for that. And it sounds like your system takes reality into consideration that most of the people using this are not going to be lawyers. And so lawyers really ought to be a secondary consideration when you're designing something meant for the public like this. Yeah, th this is my view, and I absolutely share your perspective on that. I find it very frustrating when lawyers talk about uh, self-represented people as though they're an obstacle mm -hmm. to the justice system, that if we could just get them out of the way, we could get on with the, pro <laughs> the practice of law. Give them a lawyer, a any lawyer, and then we'll right. know what to do with them. <laughs> right, but, but as you recognize, that's not the reality. And it's increasingly not the reality. And moreover, the justice system actually belongs to those people and they're entitled to use it. And it's not their fault that they come into courthouses and don't understand the rules or the Latin or the order or the um, even where to go. Uh, that, those are design problems, but it's not their fault. They're not there voluntarily, most of them. They wouldn't mm -hmm. choose necessarily to do this. We know it's extremely stressful. So our view is, isn't it our responsibility to build the justice system around the people to whom it belongs? to go to where they are, to understand that people have a bundle of abilities and skills and challenges and limitations, and to account for all of that while bringing the justice system to them. Um, sometimes that's a physical place. We have big rural areas in British Columbia, as you do in many states in the U.S. as well. Um, and so physically, it's hard to get to a courthouse for some people. Yeah. But there's other challenges as well, as we've discussed. So it's exactly, um, that's exactly our perspective, is that the justice system belongs to the public. It's our job as a public justice entity to build it around their needs and to make it accessible. Uh, and that's what we do through human-centered design. Well, and if, if it's not clear to listeners um, who are private lawyers and are wondering if I've just thrown them under the bus, 
this is the exact same design process that you need to go through in your own practices. It's as Shannon said a minute ago, um, you know, a private firm gets to choose their target demographic, which private lawyers do too, but then you have to design for it and you, you take your demographic as you find it and you have to build something for them. I'm, I'm now at risk of uh, spending the next hour geeking out with you about design and things. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I would I, happily <laughs> go with you down that rabbit hole. <laughs> well, let me, let me switch gears and, uh, and ask you about success. And especially because of the way you're doing this, I, I, I'm confident that you have been setting targets and, and trying to assess whether you're getting to them. But, uh, you know, when you started out, uh, what was, what, how were you going to measure success and how has it measured up? It's an interesting question because it's a bit of a moving target. When you have a mandate, as we do, to provide dispute resolution services that are more affordable, more timely, more accessible, uh, more proportionate, all of those things, you can think of many different ways that you might measure that. Uh, Some of the constants have been, what is the time to resolution? How long does it take? How much does it cost for a person to get there? Um, How complicated is it? How satisfied are people with the process? Do people think the process is fair? Um, how often does the court overturn one of our decisions on appeal? And we haven't talked about the adjudicative phase, but if mediation fails, then a tribunal member makes a binding determination and that's appealable to the courts. Um, so all of those things can be measured and we are measuring all of those things, uh, as well as frankly, a million other more granular things as well. So our evaluation framework is highly detailed, but I think the key indicators, um, one of the most important key indicators for me is, is how do people feel when they're going through the process? If you're designing around the public and the key is that they are confident in the process and that they think that they've been treated fairly and they understand what they've been asked to do, I think we're making a pretty big leap forward in terms of access to justice. So we collect all kinds of uh, qualitative data and quantitative data. Some of the qualitative data we collect are through user satisfaction surveys, and this is not something that's typically done in courts or tribunals here, Uh, but we ask people who have gone through the process not whether or not they agree with the decision, that's a question for the court on appeal, but we ask some questions like, uh, did you think that you were treated fairly? Were you treated with respect by CRT staff and members? Did you understand what you were being asked to do? How did the technology work for you? Um, these kinds of questions. And our satisfaction ratings are are really high. Hmm. So, so far, about 90% of people say that they feel that they've been treated fairly, um, that the proce- about 80% of people say that they've found the process clear and understandable. And I would hazard that that compares pretty favorably to the way people tend to feel going through the typical court process. Oh, come on. It's not even close. I'm being Nobody diplomatic. feels that good about going through the court system. <laughs> but so I, I guess my point is um, the technology is great because it allows you to collect all kinds of data and we use that and analyze that. And there's a story to tell there as well. But I think just as important is the qualitative data because that affects people's confidence in the administration of justice, yeah. whether they feel that in a nutshell, they got a fair shake or not, even if they disagree with the outcome. So that's been pretty heartening. But we are very cautious and we're careful to be very humble about this because it's always a work in progress. Mm -hmm. Um, The good thing about all this user testing is that it keeps you really humble. And our team is pretty much egoless at this point because 
we've had we've gone back so many times to the public and we've had so many cases where some small feature that we thought collectively as a group of lawyers and IT professionals uh, was going to be wonderful and everybody would adore it uh, only to have the public <laughs> tell you it's a disaster and it's horrible and you should kill it right away. I'm still working on that. I'm impressed. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, I think um, it's something you constantly have to keep in check because the temptation is to uh, make assumptions about what the public yeah. preference will be um, and also to get too attached to ideas that you think are, are great in theory but just don't work in practice. So keeping really connected to the public need through user testing has been really, really helpful. And we keep doing that now as well. We, we will never stop doing that. Are you able to say anything about the potential burden on the justice system that CRT may have taken up? I can tell you in rough strokes that when we assume jurisdiction over small claims disputes, $5,000 and under uh, in BC on June 1st of last year, that we anticipated through statistics that that would take out about 40% of the small claims court's work. Mm -hmm. So in other words, uh, small claims are heavily concentrated at the lower end of the monetary spectrum. And this is borne out so far through our analytics. About 40% of those cases are now taken out of the court system and are, are being handled through the CRT. And that's important because it allows the court system then to devote those resources to reducing wait times for criminal trials and family trials. Um, frankly, cases where, where the interests at stake are, are pretty important. If someone were to try to get something like the CRT implemented in their own, say, state or county, um, where would you suggest they start? I mean, I know this is legislative, so maybe you just start knocking on doors of your legislators, but I'm curious how you would recommend people start trying to get something like this done. Yeah, and that's an interesting question. I've seen it start to happen in different ways in different jurisdictions around the world. So I mentioned, I think we were, we were on the forefront, but it's exciting to see that there are uh, projects now uh, in all kinds of different jurisdictions, and some of them are being driven by the government, as it was, as was the case here in British Columbia, but a number of them are being driven by the judiciary itself. So you see that in the courts in England and Wales. Uh, you see it in the courts in, in your jurisdiction in Utah. The Utah uh, state courts are launching an ODR, small claims project, and that, that was really spawned within the court system. And, and so it can happen, I think, in different ways. But I think the key is having a, a strong champion who has decision-making authority, who is committed to seeing it through despite various setbacks and road bumps, because it's never a smooth process. But I think the other key important thing um, there is, is change management. We spent a huge amount of time on change management. Uh, I think that might be easier as ODR becomes more acceptable and, and known and has a, a better or more of a track record anyway. But for us, we, we had to spend a lot of time uh, talking to stakeholders, talking to lawyers, talking to the public, helping, to, helping them to really understand what the vision is and alleviate some of their anxieties about what it might mean for the justice system. If your listeners are interested, the National Center for State Courts Joint Technology Initiative just released two reports on ODR. One is a set of case studies uh, around the United States and other jurisdictions, and the other is a set of recommendations for jurisdictions that are looking at uh, instituting an ODR process. So I would recommend both of those reports to you. Not just full disclosure, I did sit on the committee that helped <laughs> write them, uh, but I think they are a solid starting point. Very cool. We'll try to include those links in the show notes. Shannon, thank you so much for being with us today. I really enjoyed hearing about the CRT and how it has been developed, the role that you've had in designing it and bringing it to the public. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Sam. I've enjoyed it.
Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.